in 1 Peter chapter, chapter 3. So if you have a Bible, you turn there to 1 Peter chapter 3. We're continuing in our series, Strangers and Exiles, uh, and just looking at how we are called out of a world and called into the, the into be citizens of the kingdom of heaven and what that looks like for us here and now. We're going to be in chapter 3, verses 18 through 22. We'll finish the chapter today. Um, we, uh, last week was great. Hoyt, Hoyt gave a message about standing out and, uh, and not fitting in. And uh, just that notion of, of we are different. We're called to be different. And, uh, and even at the end of that passage in 1 Peter chapter 3, his passage last week, verse 17, is kind of where we head into this week. Uh, it says, if even, uh, for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. So the things that are God's will, it's good to do those things. And if, if we're doing those things, we might suffer for doing good. But it's better that way because it points to Christ. And so we're going to see uh, how that looks today. It's, uh, it's better to suffer for doing good. Why? Because it points to Jesus Christ. So today we remind ourselves of why that matters, of why pointing people to Jesus matters. And we're going to look at that reason being Christ's great triumph. So today's message title is Christ's Triumph. We're in 1 Peter chapter 3. I'll pray for us. I'll read our passage together. Then we'll dive right into it, all right? Let's, let's uh, pray. Father, thank you so much for your grace and your mercy. As we come to you today, we, we ask that you would open our hearts and our minds to be receptive to your word. God, we, we realize that we are strangers and exiles. That God, at least we're called to be strangers and exiles. For some of us, maybe we look at ourselves and, and look at our lives, and, and we don't look much different than the world. So God, help us to, to really examine our own hearts, examine our own lives, and, and, and find that our citizen, citizenship actually is in heaven. And if it is in heaven with the King of Kings, then our lives should look tremendously different. So God, help us to, to embrace that. Help us to see you today and, and to see us for who we are. But God, to be thankful for the, the fact that you offered yourself as a, as a sacrifice for sin. You offered your body and you shed your blood that we could be made whole through faith in Christ. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're in 1 Peter chapter 3. I'll read verses 18 through the end of the chapter. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison who were in the past disobedient when God patiently waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. In it, a few, that is eight people, were saved through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience towards God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers subject to him. All right, well, today we are looking at Christ's triumph. We're going to see uh, exactly what, what it accomplished. And, and for you and I, uh, it's, it's an amazing feat, right? And we, we kind of, we're almost pausing, like, what is my, what is my uh, application for everyday life as a stranger in exile? Well, we have to pause at times and say, first of all, we are citizens of the king. And, and first of all, that we celebrate his body and his blood, that we remember the triumph and the citizenship, our, our citizenship in heaven was only accomplished because of what Christ has done for us on the cross. And that leads us to point number one. Christ's triumph was over sin. Number one is it's over sin. His triumph was over sin. If you look at that passage of scripture in verse 18, the first part of verse 18 says this, for Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. 
This is an important part of Scripture to understand Christ's triumph. And for, for our lives, as we, as we consider the body and the blood shed for us, we understand that God's goal was to bring us near to Him. Christ also suffered. Some translations say He died. Either way, He suffered through dying on the cross. For what? For sins. And, and these sins were not His sins, right? He, Jesus did not die in His own place. He died in our place. He died for our sins. It says, once for all. What does that mean, once for all? It means for all time. He was the once and done, it is finished, final sacrifice. The perfect lamb that was slain for us. It wasn't a sacrifice that was only good for a few minutes or good for the people in that time. And then someone, they'd offer another sacrifice a year later. No, this was a once and done, final, ultimate sacrifice by the perfect lamb of God. And, and he goes on to, to prove that. He says, the righteous for the unrighteous. This was not an unrighteous sacrifice. This was not a blemished lamb. This was a perfect lamb sacrifice. The righteous, and that word righteous there is the singular word righteous. Why is it singular? Because it's talking about the singular person of the Lord Jesus Christ, the righteous. It says the righteous died for who? The unrighteous. And that word is not singular. That word is plural. The unrighteous are who? You and I. It's the rest of humanity. The Christ, the perfect one, the righteous one, died for the unrighteous ones, all of us. We are all unrighteous. Why did he do that? That he might bring you to God. That he might bring you to God. I think so often we get stuck in our, in our ways thinking, oh, I, I, I'm okay. God, God will certainly accept me. Listen, we have absolutely zero standing to stand before God or stand with God in our own capacity. There is no relationship with God when we are in our sin. There's absolutely none. And we can't fool ourselves. I mean, well, we can. We can kind of, you know, play like we're okay. But we definitely can't fool God. One day we will all stand before God. And the only way to be brought near is through faith in the blood of Jesus Christ shed for you. Ephesians tells us this. Paul says in Ephesians 2, but now in Christ, very important to hold on to those words, in Christ. We'll see it later today as well. In Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Amen? We're brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. For He, He, that is Jesus, the righteous one who died for the unrighteous, He is our peace, who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. Right, we'll see later where he, His death, he, he, when He died, what happened? He tore the veil, right? That, that access to God was made real for us. He is our peace, right? He tore, broke down the hostility. In His flesh, He made of no effect the law consisting of its commands and expressed in regulations, so that he might create in himself one new from the two. People that would embrace the law, who were the Jews and, and the Gentiles who were sinful people. He said, listen, my, my salvation is for all of you. He did it so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross by which he put the hostility to death. There was a hostility between man and God. There was even hostility between man and man, Jew and Gentile. But God had put himself, put, allowed himself to die. He was put to death, and he put to death the hostility that was there through his death. He came and he proclaimed the good news of peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. But through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. We've been brought near through faith in Jesus Christ. We have peace because he offered himself and suffered and died the righteous for the unrighteous. It says we were strangers, right? 
He says you're no longer strangers. And, and our, our, whole, our whole series is that we're strangers and exiles. What does this mean? It says you were strangers, but you're no longer foreigners and strangers. It's, whenever, whenever we're a citizen somewhere, that means wherever we're not a citizen, we're foreigners and strangers, right? So before we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we are strangers and aliens or exiles to the kingdom of heaven. And, and that's what, what Paul's saying is before you had faith in Christ, before you could be brought near through the blood of Jesus Christ, you were foreigners and strangers. But through faith in Christ, now you're no longer foreigners and strangers to Christ, but you are now citizens with the saints, members of God's household. And as members of God's household, we are now strangers and exiles to the world. Right? Wherever your citizenship is, the place it's not is where you're a stranger and an exile. You were strangers to God's kingdom, and now you are citizens. And we are strangers and exiles to the world. Well, how did he do this? How did he make this way for us to be drawn near? Well, it goes back to the righteous for the unrighteous. He made the one, 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says, He made the one, that is Jesus, who did not know sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, God is, is in the business of imputing righteousness, of giving us a righteousness that we never earned or deserved, but giving it to us through faith in Christ because of the righteous one who gave himself for us to bring us into relationship with him. And again, Jesus on the cross, he's dying. And Matthew, the account says, he cried again with a loud voice and he gave up his spirit. And then suddenly the curtain of the sanctuary was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth quaked and the rocks were split. God's death and his resurrection, this, this victory over sin, right? His triumph over sin was there so that you and I could have access to God. That through faith in Christ, our sins are now removed because he died for sins. And we have access to God and we can come before him because he's bestowing mercy and grace. What he accomplished on the cross is beautiful and it's triumphant because it was triumphant over sin. The author of Hebrews says it in chapter 4. He says, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, that is Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way, yet was without sin. The sinless one, the righteous one. Therefore, so we know we have this high priest who's, who's laid his life down for us to, to triumph over sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with what? Confidence, right? Boldness. Courage. Why? Not because we're good enough, because we could not approach on our own merit. We approach it because of what Christ has offered. We approach it because his death and victory over sin has made a way for us to draw near. We approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we will receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Listen, as, as people who have put our faith in Jesus Christ, as strangers and exiles, we now can come with a boldness to him and a confidence because of our relationship with Christ. He has torn the veil. He's made a way for us to approach him through his triumph over sin. Secondly, we see number two. He had a triumph over Satan. Not only did he triumph over sin, he triumphed over Satan. Let's continue reading in, in verse 18. It says, he was put to death in the flesh. What does that mean? He had a body. He, he took on human flesh, and that body and flesh was crucified and killed. He was put to death in the flesh, but he was made alive by what? The Spirit, in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison who were in the past disobedient. Listen, this whole passage of Scripture we're covering today is, is one of the deepest ones I've ever dove into. 
and, and we're not going to even, we're going to cover the surface depths of it. Uh, there is so much business behind this. There's so much meaning behind this. And I would encourage you to study on your own. There are, there are so many books written on these topics. Uh, but we're going to cover just what we, what we know Peter is trying to say here and, and, and what, what he's trying to come across. And there's a lot of different meanings and ways this could go. It says he was put to death in the flesh and, and he was made alive by the Spirit or in the Spirit. Uh, there is no capital punctuation in the, in the original text. So we don't know, is it, was he talking about the Holy Spirit or just the, the Spirit inside of a person? Every person has a, a flesh and a soul, right? So what was he, were they talking about? I think ultimately what we're saying here is that he was put to death, but death couldn't hold him. He was brought back to life. What do we see? His death and his resurrection, right? He was made alive by the Spirit. In which, then he says, it made, he made proclamation to the spirits in prison, who in the past were disobedient. Well, what the heck does that mean? Like, did he go to a prison cell and start t- preaching to people? What, who are the spirits of, that are disobedient? Did he, did, some people think that, oh, well, he went to hell and he started preaching in hell and trying to, trying to give him one last chance. And that's, that's not biblical either, right? Well, what does this mean? There's, there's kind of two main thoughts that this would really indicate. That one is this, that the spirits who are in prison are those who are souls of men, humanity, who are dead and lost in their sin, like all of us were before faith in Christ, right? And we are dead and lost in our sin. These are souls of people that he, he, he went out by the power of his resurrection and said, listen, repent of your sin and turn to faith in Christ. That could be one of the meanings. I think one of the meanings that we see maybe a little more clearly is the second meaning that I'm going to present to you, that these are actually, he's proclaiming something to the spirits who are in prison. They are fallen angels, that they are fallen angels. And, and the proclamation here, when he says they proclaim, it, the word is not evangelized. Like they didn't go out and preach the gospel to these uh, spirits. He proclaimed, he heralded a message to them. He gave them some update. Now what was that update? What do you think that update was? He had just died and was risen. And what, what's the update now to the spirits of darkness? You lose. You lose. You tried and you tried to kill me. You tried but you lose. I want to show you this in Jude, uh, verses 5 through 6. Uh, Jude writes, I, I want to remind you, although you came to know these things once and for all, that Jesus saved a people out of Egypt and later destroyed those who did not believe. Right? There's judgment to be had. And it goes on, though. And the angels who did not keep their own position but abandoned their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains in deep darkness for the judgment on the great day. Like these demons are being held, bound, ready for eternal punishment. There's a place for that. And so what, what else is he talking about? He, he also talks in this verse, if you look at verses 18 and, uh, through 20, he's put to death in the flesh, made alive by the Spirit, in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison who in the past were disobedient when God patiently waited in the days of Noah. So what was happening in the days of Noah, right? We see this, this fall of, of fallen angels. We see this in Isaiah. We see it in Job, that the angels rebelled with Satan against God. A third of the angels left heaven and were kicked out of heaven, right, and sent down. And they were now uh, to do, this, do Satan's bidding and to, and to try to torment us and try to lead us away from the King of kings and Lord of lords, right? So in the past, right, Satan, Satan we have to understand first, he wants to destroy God's Messiah. And we see that in Genesis chapter 3. There's this battle, right, when, when the serpent comes and tempts Adam and Eve, right? Satan has already fallen at this point. He comes to tempt Adam and Eve. What happens? They fall into sin. And then what is the message from God to Satan? You are going to lose. You will strike at his heel, the Messiah, 
but you will lose. He will crush your head. You will lose. So this is what Peter is referring to here, I believe. Satan trying to rally the troops, and Jesus rising from the dead saying, nope, not today. Genesis chapter 6, we see the account of the flood. When mankind began to multiply on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of mankind were beautiful, and they took as their wives for themselves. Uh, this is a reference not to, to mankind. This is a reference to what people would likely say, and tr- church tradition says, fallen angels. Fallen angels, sons of God, ones who used to be in heaven, sons of God. And they took for themselves wives, and they had kids, and these mighty warriors, like these little X-Men superhero things started popping out, right? What, what was going on with that? Well, what, what continued to happen? It wasn't like, hey, let's make a great race, and we're going to honor God. They had fallen away. Again, Satan is trying to rally the troops. So what, what did God see in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5? What happened in Genesis 6? Something called the flood. Why? When the Lord God saw human wickedness was widespread on the earth and that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time, the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and was deeply grieved. And the Lord God said, I will wipe mankind whom I created off the face of the earth together with all the animals, creatures that crawl, and birds of the sky, for I regret that I made them. Noah, however, found favor with the Lord. So you see this, this union of the sons of God, these fallen angels with, with the daughters of man didn't create this peace and harmony and superhero race. It created evil upon evil and upon evil, and wickedness just prevailed. There was no righteousness, no faithfulness, because they were out to destroy God and His Messiah. But God's covenant promises prevailed. Amen? God's covenant promises prevailed with the Messiah and the Messiah would win over Satan. What was, what was the Messiah's job? We see that in 1 John. 1 John chapter 3. That the Son of God was revealed for this purpose. To destroy the works of the devil. To destroy the works of the devil. So when he made proclamation to the spirits in prison who had been disobedient like during the days of Noah. What did he say? You're done. You lose. I win. He made sure they knew they had no power. And whatever they would muster up and whatever schemes they would have would not prevail ultimately in the, in the end of the war, right? They may win a battle or two or three, but they would not win the war. What are Satan's works? What are those things we need to watch out for? Well, morally, right, he entices us to sin and compromise. That's why a book like Proverbs is such great instruction morally. Well, physically, he, he seeks to destroy those who bear the image of God. Intellectually, he seduces us into error and believing false doctrine. And then spiritually, he, he blinds the minds of unbelievers so they would not see and believe the gospel. And listen, all of humanity is trapped in pride and sin. And what all humanity does, what Satan's work is to accomplish is this ultimate fear that we will only find security through things or stuff or relationships. And and the purpose of life is to eliminate anxiety, eliminate fear, and to run towards the things that would make us more secure. That's not what Christ offers. He offers hope in Him that makes us secure, not hope in things that makes us secure. So in those pursuits of things that would make people secure or quote-unquote secure, everyone is still trapped in this ultimate fear of death. 
because they cannot conquer that. They might feel good for a moment, but then the reality of death comes knocking at their door, and they don't know what to do except numb the pain. But God destroyed the works of the devil through Christ. We see in Hebrews chapter 2, the writer says, Now since the children have flesh and blood, it's like talking about humanity, they have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these by putting on a body, right? So that through his death, he might destroy, again, here's, here's his victory, here's the proclamation, he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is the devil, and then free, listen, free us, that Jesus came in victory over Satan to free us who are held in slavery all our lives by the fear of death. You understand that? Like, like no one can take our soul. In faith, through faith in Christ. We have nothing to fear. They can only kill my body. A disease can only kill my body. And that's the ultimate thing. We, we suffer in many ways that aren't even uh, re, like resembling death, right? It's, it's loss, or it's like we don't have enough money, or we didn't have enough time, or we, whatever it might be. Uh, we don't have the right car, or we're broke down, and we're walking. We, like, I struggle with that. I suffer with that, right? Listen, there's hope that prevails, this, this, life, this life, this world is not our home. We are just passing through. And we have the one who is victorious over Satan and the schemes that he plays on us. He has the victory. It was his death that would triumph over Satan once and for all. And he shared that during that, that time where it was the Last Supper, right? Jesus with his disciples. As they were eating, he took the bread and he blessed it and broke it and gave thanks and said, take it, this is my body. This is my, I'm offering this to you. This is where hope lies. Then he took the cup after giving thanks and, and gave it to them. And, and after he drank it, he said, listen, this is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many. Like th- this, what I'm offering you is where life is found. What I'm offering you is what, where hope is found. What, I, what I'm going to do will let you draw near to God and free you from the, the slavery of being afraid of death any longer. And Satan won't be able to have the hold on you. Through his death and through his resurrection, he triumphed over Satan, and he went and told him that. Number three, Christ's triumph was for our salvation. Again, this gets tricky as we read it. Let's go into it. Let's see when when God patiently waited in verse three or chapter three, verse twenty. When God patiently waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared. Now stop there. That really corresponds back to what we just read about the the fall of the sons of man and the corruption of the world, right? But it goes on. He continues to use Noah as an example. And a lot of New Testament writers did, and a lot of Old Testament writers did. They kept going back to Noah. And and then there's this word. It says, in it. In what? In the ark that was being prepared, right? In it, a few, that is eight people, were what? Saved through water. They were saved through water. What does that mean? They got in the boat. God shut the door, and it rained and flooded the earth 20 feet over the highest peak. And they were rescued because they were in the ark. They were saved through the waters. What were the waters? The waters were judgment. So it says, let's go on to that. And in it, a few uh, were saved through water. Now he takes this and turns the corner. He says, baptism. Let's, let's, let's make this imagery real. Let's look at what this really looks like. But we have to look at this, what it really looks like, and not what we think he's saying here. Baptism, which corresponds to this now, saves you. But he clarifies this point. because we See, we think that right there. Oh, see, there's, there's churches that believe oh, you have to get baptized or you ain't saved. You see, it says it right there. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. 
But he made the statement next. He says, not as the removal of dirt from the body. He's saying, not the flesh and blood aspect of this. Not the, not the water wa- washing over you aspect of this. Baptism, the word, we have to understand the word. What does it mean? The word baptism. It's not, it's not a picture of, of this huge event with your friends and family where you have water involved and it's spritzed or sprinkled or poured or dunked. That's not what it means. The word baptism is, is to be fully immersed. That's why when we baptize someone, we use the word baptism and fully immerse somebody, right? So what is, what is Peter saying? It's, it's what, what, fully, what fully saves you? Being fully immersed saves you. And he says, not, not in the water as through cleaning your body, but what? He says, not in the water, but the pledge of a good conscience towards God. And what is that? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So for you and I, what Peter's saying is, just like those on the ark, they went in the ark, and they were saved the judgment of God. For you and I who have faith in Jesus Christ, we are now safe and secure because we've been immersed into Christ in His resurrection. The power of the blood and the resurrection has saved us. Not the water, but the immersion into Jesus Christ. The same picture as those who were on the ark. So Peter uses the word baptism to, to refer to a picture of immersion into Christ as our ark. It's our ark of safety, right? Christ is our ark of safety, not, not the baptismal. And in Christ, we are safe and secure from judgment, but judgment is still on those who do not believe. Noah and his family were secure and protected in the ark, while everything outside was under judgment. It's the same picture we're seeing there. God saved them in the midst of his judgment. God saved them, which he's also done for all of those who trust in Christ. Not not baptism. He's not saying baptism saves you, right? God provides salvation because the sinner, by faith, is immersed into Christ's death and his resurrection and becomes secure in Christ through a new relationship. Just as the flood immersed all people in judgment, yet some passed through it safely, so also his final judgment will involve everyone except those who are in Christ will pass through safely and securely. This is the picture. God's triumph is for salvation. It's like, I'm, I'm now the ark. You come to me and find hope. Come to me and find rest. You come to me and you're secure. In me there is no judgment. Romans 8.1 says, There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are baptized. No, it doesn't say that. It says there's now no condemnation for those who are immersed in Christ Jesus as Lord. First, first Peter 1, or earlier we, we preached on this and talked about it. Here's what he says. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of His great mercy, He's given us new birth into a living hope. Through what? Baptism? No, immersion, right? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. God is guarding your salvation because of your faith in Christ, because He can only guard it. See, being immersed in Christ is what this is all about. He has accomplished a great salvation for us. His triumph is for salvation. Finally, number four, Christ's triumph is supreme. We see Christ's triumph as supreme. He goes on in this passage from, uh, 
our first thing he said, we, we have a, this good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers subject to him. Listen, he didn't just go and tell the devil and his demons, you lose. He's now sitting in, in at the right hand of God in heaven with everything subjected underneath him. He is the authority over all of it. He proved his supremacy, and he is ultimately supreme. And Philippians tells us this, that he humbled himself and became obedient to death on a cross. And then what? For this reason, God highly exalted him, gave him the name above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow on heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There is only one who is supreme, and that is Jesus Christ. He has a name above every name. Peter said this in Acts 20 as he's preaching during Pentecost. He says, God raised this Jesus. We are all witnesses of this. Therefore, since he has been exalted to the right hand of God and received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out what you both see and hear. So he says, listen, what, what you're hearing and seeing today at Pentecost is what God has poured out to us because he's supreme. For it was not David. Don't think it's your ancestor David we worship. It was not David who ascended into the heavens, but he himself, David himself said in Psalms, the Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand and I'll make your enemies your footstool. God is supreme. Jesus Christ is supreme. He reigns supremely. And then here's the therefore statement from Peter. Therefore, because he's supreme, because all the enemies will be his footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. He is the one and only. That's why we say Jesus is the only way. Because any other way is going to be a footstool to Jesus. He is supreme. He has triumphed. He is the king. So we then should seek him. Colossians says, if, if we have been raised with Christ, then seek the things above. This is what strangers and exiles do, folks. As strangers and exiles to this world, as we're living in a world that's not our home, what do we do? What's the application? We don't walk through our lives still trying to figure it out on our own. We seek the things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life now is hidden with Christ in God. That's the encouragement to be strangers and exiles. God has triumphed in so many ways, and He has triumphed as supreme, so He deserves our supreme loyalty and allegiance as strangers and exiles, we are motivated by all that we have received through faith in Jesus Christ. And since we've been found in Christ with a righteousness that is not our own or based on our own merit, we now seek the things above where Christ is seated. He's seated there with all victory. He's seated there with all power and in great triumph because He was the one who laid down His life for us and was raised from the dead. So now as strangers and exiles, we must know and hold on to this truth. This is so important as strangers and exiles. We, so often we, we spend tons of our time just fighting for a victory. I need to fight for victory. As strangers and exiles, as people who have put their faith in Jesus Christ, the one who's triumphant over Satan, sin, and death, we don't have to fight for victory anymore. We can fight from victory. 
You get the difference? Jesus has already won. He is already supreme. So when we fight from victory, that's when we can come like today to the Lord's table. We don't fight for victory. God, I, I really need this to, to matter today. I really need this to, to mean something. I really need this, this cracker and juice to, to change me and save me. No, we come because it has already, because Jesus, his, his, his body, his blood, his death, his resurrection has already changed us. And today as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we celebrate it from victory, from the victory that Christ has had for us and the victory that you and I now have because we are in Christ Jesus. Amen? All right, let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for your great love. We ask that as we go into this time of, of sharing in the Lord's Supper that you would, you would help us with that. You would encourage us, God. You would, you would help remind us that you have won the victory and, and God, that we, through faith in Jesus Christ, are firm and secure from judgment and condemnation. We live as a people that are free and God, that will look like strangers and exiles to this world, but help us to do that, proclaiming greatly your, your triumph, your victory over Satan, sin, and death once and for all. We trust you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.